2: Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today, I'm joined by a friend, and we're going to visit the area of Southwark in London.
1: My name's Diane Burstein and I'm a Qualified London Blue Badge Tour Guide. My website is www.secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk So have a look at that to find out about the tours I do. And if you would like to contact me and join my mailing list, it's Diane, D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. You can also follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and that is at Guide Diane.
2: Hello, Diane. Nice to see you yet again. Hello again. Now, what I thought we'd do today... Um, I have areas in London that I find more fascinating than others, perhaps, yes. although I love London in general. So what I'd like to do today is just have a little trip around Southwark, because I know you're quite an expert on the area.
1: Yes, Southwark is an area that's changed out of all recognition in the last 25 years or so. When I was first guiding in the mid-1990s, Southwark was an area of undiscovered London. If you didn't live or work in that area or go to visit friends there, you probably didn't know it.
2: Right. Well, what I'd like to start off with is Southwark's Dickensian side because okay. I know that Dick Charles Dickens had a quite a close connection to the area. Can we? Can you tell me something about his influence on the area? Yes.
1: Well, his father was in prison there, and if you go down to the bottom of Borough High Street, just opposite Borough Station, you'll see a library. And next to that library, there's a passageway. You go down the passageway and you come to a wall. Walk through the gate in the wall and you'll find an inscription that tells you that up until the 1840s, this was the site of the Marshalsea prison, which started off as a quite an important prison for political and religious prisoners. But by the time we get to the 19th century, it's become a debtor's prison. And Charles Dickens' father, John, had quite a good job. He worked for the Navy office, which was at Somerset House. But unfortunately, he was spending more money than he was earning. And in those days, that (laughs) meant that you ended up in the debtor's prison and the Marshalsea became a debtor's prison. So young Charles Dickens, he's just 12 years old. He's only been in London a couple of years. The family had been living in Kent. And he goes from quite a comfortable middle-class existence to having to work in a factory called the Blacking Factory, which is Warren's Blacking Factory, which is over on the embankment. And it makes the blacking that they put onto fire grates and lampposts and that sort of thing. And after a long day at work, he has to walk all the way from near where Embankment Station is today. He has to walk over London Bridge. He has to walk down to the bottom of Borough High Street where he visits not only his father, but the rest of his family in the prison. Because if you were a debtor, you could take your family to prison with you because they didn't have a home, maybe. Although young Charles stayed in the home that the family had been renting over in Camden Town. So after visiting his parents, parents in prison, he has to walk all the way back again. To Camden Town. That's quite a journey. That's a long journey. So eventually young Charles finds lodgings. And he finds those lodgings in a street called Lance Street,
2: Street, which is
1: across the road from where the Marshallsea prison was. And it's not a very nice part of town. It's an area that's got a reputation for crime. So imagine a twelve-year-old boy is taken out of school, sent to work in a factory, his father and the rest of the family are in prison. And now he's living on his his own in a slightly dodgy area of town. Mm. It was a tough introduction to life for him, but it gave him the inspiration and the material for many of his novels. So when he was writing Little Dorrit, for example, he remembers those days and he has Little Dorrit, a child of the marshalsea, living with her father, in the Marshalsea prison. And she's allowed out during the day. Her father isn't. But there's a curfew at nine o'clock at night when she has to be back. And one day she misses the curfew. And she's thinking, where can I spend the night? And she goes to St. George the Martyr Church.
2: Little Dorrit's Church. she sits on, yeah.
1: on the steps and somebody invites her into the warmth and she stays the night inside the church. And then at the end of the book, She gets married to Arthur Clenham inside the church. So if you go to St George the Martyr Church today, which is an 18th century church, and you go to the back of the church, there's a stained glass window, post-war stained glass window. And you really have to look for this in the bottom left hand side of the window is a very, very tiny little figure. Of little Dorrit. And she looks like she's an angel with angel's wings. But if you look very closely, it's not wings. It's her bonnet, which she's taken off her head. And it's tied around her neck and it's on her back. Oh, Because right. I'll be past
2: the church loads bonnet, of times. Yes. I will go in and have so a look next if time. the doors are open, Yeah, absolutely. In? So on the subject of prisons, um I know that the area... Obviously, let's talk about the Clink prison next. Yes, and then yeah. I've got another one I want to ask you about. Okay. So... I know the clink prism was a mixed prism, wasn't it?
1: It, it was. Well, many the prisons all were mixed prisons originally. So, so was Newgate okay. Prison. And in fact, women, if you were condemned to death, you could plead your belly. In other words, you could say you were pregnant ah, right, of course, and then you yeah, wouldn't be that. condemned to death. So, a lot of women were busy trying to get pregnant when they were in the prison, actually. And it was only later when they built women's prisons like Holloway that, you know, we're talking the late nineties century when they start to uh, segregate right. prisons and build prisons for women prisoners as well. But uh, originally, no, everybody was in there together. And you had two types of prisoners there. Um, you had the prisoners who were religious prisoners. So when you had uh, Catholic Queen Mary on the throne, she's throwing Protestants into prison. And then Queen Elizabeth I is throwing the Catholics into prison. So you've got the sound of prayers, but you've also got the sound of baldy singing from the prostitutes and the boards and the people who've been fighting each other on the bank side. They're all thrown into the clink as well. And, of course, the clink becomes a byword for being in prison. He's in the clink. Yeah, he's in
2: the clink, yeah. That's
1: right. But that one... Closes. Well, it gets burnt down in 1780 during the Gordon riots, which were anti-Catholic riots. And the rioters let the prisoners out of the prison. And the first thing they do is burn down the prison.
2: Now, I'm going to come on to the areas uh, linked to prostitution in a minute. Um, just before, there is one other prison, I believe, that was there in the area by the old um, Newington. Well, there
1: were a few others there. But the King's Bench Prison and then we have the Horsemonger Lane that's Jail. That's the one. Yeah, tell that's me about that. There. And today on that site, there is a magistrates' court, which is on the road as you go up Borough High Street and then you're heading up towards Elephant and Castle and Yeah, on the towards what they call side. the Newington Court. That's right. Yeah. You have the uh, magistrates' court. Behind the magistrates' court, there's a little park, which used to be nicknamed Jail Park because right. this jail was on the site. And they used to have public hangings and they would hang people on the roof there. So you could look out of your window and watch a public hanging. And that's the reason why this area didn't take off really as a fashionable area. Because near there, you've got a couple of nice squares, which wouldn't look out of place in Bloomsbury or even Kensington. And you think, well, why didn't they build more of the same? And the reason they didn't is because the well-to-do people don't want to live right next to a no. prison where you've got rowdy crowds yeah. turning up to watch a public hanging. And in the 1840s, we have the hangings of a couple called the Mannings. And their case was one of those called celebs because it was a married couple who had murdered a man and then stolen his money, basically. And he was the ex-lover of the woman in the couple, Maria Manning. And she was from France and dressed very elegantly. Even when she went to be hanged, she was wearing this beautiful black silk dress. And so this really captured people's imagination. And crowds came out to watch it. And in the crowd was the aforementioned Charles Dickens, of course. And oh, so he, he, witnessed saw the execution. This. he witnessed it. But he also realised how awful it was people going to yeah. watch these hangings. As a sort of public entertainment. And so he campaigned not so much against the idea of capital punishment, but about the idea of public hangings. And in 1868, they stopped public hangings right. and they still hang people, but within the precincts Yeah, within the
2: confines of the prison of walls, these, yeah. Of these jails.
1: Yeah. And one of the reasons you have these jails here is because. Southwark was an area outside of the city. It was really London's first suburb. So, a suburb in Roman times, it started to be built up. They found lots of Roman remains around there. And so, it was a place also where people went to seek refuge from the jurisdiction of the city. So, you'd had this criminal element there for a while. So, they built prisons there.
2: Okay. Now, so let's lead on then to, I suppose, well, I wouldn't call it a criminal element, but I know the area. Um, was synonymous with prostitution. Yes. Um, I'll hand the story over to you. Well,
1: once again, it was outside of the city walls. So the areas that were the red light districts were the areas outside of the city walls. And the prostitutes, of course, they had good clientele here because, number one, they had all the sailors. So that was going to provide them with lots of custom. And the other thing is that the theatres came to this area so you had the rose the globe globe the swan the hope and you also had bear baiting rings and so people would come there for their entertainment And entertainment went alongside prostitution. And if you think of the areas in central London that have been red-light districts, we're looking at the Bankside. Then we're looking at Covent Garden. That's where the theatres moved to in the sixties. Yeah, and of course Soho, yeah. And then we're looking at Soho when the theatres moved further west to Shaftesbury Avenue in the 1880s. And that becomes the red-light district. So prostitution, it really runs alongside entertainment.
2: I know that that during um, some excavation work for the Jubilee Line extension, they they discovered a a graveyard?
1: Well, there was a graveyard. I think they knew that was there beforehand. It was called the Crossbones Graveyard. And uh, in the records, it is written that this was a Graveyard for Single Women. Now, it's thought that single women was a euphemism (laughs) really for um, being for prostitutes. It wasn't only prostitutes who were buried there. It was a poor people's graveyard, basically. And, of course, it's owned by the railway lines and they wanted to build, they've wanted to build flats and offices there for many years. But a local man called John Constable, who's written books about the area, he started up a campaign to save the Crossbones Graveyard and he started holding regular vigils He's been very successful. There. Um, people started to put yellow ribbons, ribbons for yeah. remembrance on the gateway there on the site, which was being used by the Jubilee line, of course, for mm. uh, storing materials, etc. And now... There is a little memorial garden there. It is opened at extremely limited times because they're reliant on volunteers. But when it is open, it's a nice little yeah. I've
2: seen place some candlelit own. vigils there. They that's hold them right. sometimes yes, on, a right. yeah. on a Friday evening. They do on a
1: Friday evening. Yeah. All. Halloween as well.
2: Okay, so let's let's move around the area. Let's just go. You mentioned um, very attractive squares. Now, there's one in particular that comes out on the knowledge quite a lot. Yes. And it's got a statue in the middle. That's right. Now, that's... I was led to believe, and you'll hopefully tell me I'm correct, that that's one of the oldest statues in London.
1: Well... They think it comes from Westminster Hall. So Westminster Hall is the oldest part of the Houses of Parliament that didn't burn down when the rest of the Palace of Westminster burnt down in 1834. And Westminster Hall, the oldest parts, date to the 11th century and then it was renovated in the 13th century. And there's quite a lot of statuary inside. And to be honest, we can't tell which king's those statues represent because the faces have been weathered. But also there was statuary on the outside. And in the 1820s, they were building a very short-lived building that went just outside Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall was being used as a courthouse. It had been used for trials for many years. Thomas More was tried there and they were building an additional courthouse there. And that courthouse didn't last for terribly long because, of course, of the fire. But when they were building the courthouse, they took some of the statues on the outside of the building. Some of them went into Westminster Hall, but some of them ended up in other places. And it is thought, I don't think they know for sure, that that statue Came from Westminster Hall and ended up in the centre of Trinity Church Square, and he's always referred to as King Alfred.
2: That's right. Well, I mean, I was always led to believe it was Alfred the Great, but yeah, you're yeah, never King quite because Trinity Church Square is a beautiful square.
1: Yeah, it was laid out in the 1820s, and it was owned by the company of Trinity House, who Trinity House is based, as you probably know, as a taxi driver near to the Tower Hill the Hotel, and the yeah, Tower of yeah, London, I do. and Trinity House was this organisation that ensured safety on the high seas and looked after lighthouses in England and Wales and still in existence today, founded during the reign of Henry VIII and they owned land here. So this was leased, this land, and it was leased to um, a builder, um, a Mr Chadwick, and he built this square and he was going to develop this whole area But apparently, he got rather greedy and was being offered money from people who wanted to build factories nearby. So another reason why the area didn't take off as fashionable, not only the prison being nearby, but because there was industry and factories around as well. So you only had the two squares, Trinity Church Square, which has a church in the centre. And that church was unfortunately damaged in the Second World War. And after that, it didn't reopen as a church because, as we've heard, we've got other churches nearby, St George the Martyr and others nearby. And so, instead, it became a place for recording of music. Henry Wood Hall. And rehearsals. Henry Wood Hall, named after the famous conductor. So, often you'll buy a recording of classical music and it'll be recorded at Henry Wood Hall. And a lot of the big orchestras rehearse there. London Philharmonic Orchestra rehearse there. So you'll often see the big vans. Yeah, turn I've seen up them before outside. big trucks yes, turning that's up, yeah, right. with all the stuff. All the orchestras okay. Material there and the acoustics are very, very good. And uh, some of them are privately owned, but a lot of the houses there are still rented out. All oh, the right. doors are painted black because they're all owned by the same management. Right, and, and the window so, frames
2: and all that and are the black as well. The window frames, yeah. yes. Okay, so talking of housing, the area. It's got sort of mixed housing.
1: It has, yes. You've got a real mixture. So Trinity Church Square and the adjoining Merrick Square are unusual in that um, you've got these squares that wouldn't look out of place in Bloomsbury, Georgian houses, etc. Yeah. But mostly you hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF Podcast, and this
0: episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
1: Walk around and you've got council housing, which is post-war, but you have also in this area um got the Peabody buildings, yep. which are the buildings that were built with money from the Peabody charity founded in the late 1830s, with money from George Peabody, the American millionaire. So you've got a number of those. And then you've got If you go down Red Cross Street, you've got some beautiful little cottage-style houses with roses round the door, built in the 1880s. And these are the Red Cross Street cottages. And in front of them is a lovely little garden called the Red Cross Street Garden. And these were built because of a woman called Octavia Hill. Octavia Hill came from a middle-class family, but her father went bankrupt, and so. Octavia's mother and her daughters, they all came down to London, to the little village of Finchley, and settled there. Oh, well, yeah. And then they came further into town and Mrs. Hill started up a, an art school. And as well as teaching, they mostly taught women. Octavia helped there as well. And as well as running classes for middle-class women, they also did their bit for the poorer women and ran some classes for them. And Octavia befriended some of the women and they would say to her, come round to my house, see where I live. And she was shocked by the living conditions. And then a man called John Ruskin, who was wealthy and the top art critic of Victorian England, was impressed by Octavia's ideas as to how housing could be improved for working-class people, and he gave her some money to buy a couple of rundown houses. She started up her project in Marylebone, and she became a manager of housing. And other organisations became impressed by what she did. So people would give her a bit of money, and they would say, "Build some houses here for us." So the church commissioners—they owned a lot of properties—and they asked her to build oh, houses. So, so, so did very well over in Southwark, she had built these little. Houses, and um they really stand out as being very different from the other houses yeah, I have seen and them. they built them in white cross in Red Cross Street and also in a street called Sudbury Street, but Octavia Hill didn't just want housing; she wanted people to get to know their neighbors and to create a community so next to this little terrace of houses, she built a community hall. And you had meetings of local groups like uh, the church army group and scout groups and that sort of thing. But there were also places where the adults could meet their neighbours there. There were cadet groups that would meet there, etc. And they would sit in nice patterned armchairs and talk to one another and they'd have entertainment. But she loved open space as well. So there was a garden there with a pond and a bandstand that people could enjoy. Now, the years went by these weren't privately sold because the octavia charity was founded in octavia hill's name the octavia foundation they still run the houses today it's housing for older people they're still very well kept but that garden isn't a private garden octavia hill wouldn't have wanted it to be right so anybody can go she there she wanted gardens for the gardenless she wanted she called them london's open air living rooms and it had been paved over up until about 15 years or so ago, it was decided to reinstate the garden and the Bankside Open Spaces Trust created the garden again, recreated Octavia Hill's Garden, but they didn't put a bandstand there because you don't get military bands no, playing not very often. More. And they also no. thought, well, you'd get unsavoury elements hanging about yeah, in the bandstand. Yeah. So there's seating there, no bandstand, but there's a little pond. You have volunteer gardeners coming in. Right. It's open to the public during the day. They lock it up at night. It is very, very pleasant. And Octavia would be delighted, I think, that it's still there.
2: So no no mention of Southwark is complete without a brief mention of Southwark Cathedral.
1: Well, you've got to mention Southwark Cathedral, and I think you've got to mention Mr William Shakespeare as
2: well. Absolutely. And he
1: has a memorial in Southwark Cathedral. Southwark Cathedral has only been a cathedral since the beginning of the 20th century. It was originally St Mary Overy Church, which means St Mary over the river. And it was a monastic foundation there. The oldest parts of the church, well, there's a Norman archway, but most of the church you see today was built in the early 13th century in the Gothic style. Mm. And then it has been refurbished over the years so it's been given a new roof at various periods so the like a lot of these cathedrals added to refurbished over the years it's got a very interesting history it became saint saviour's church after the monasteries had closed down but King Henry VIII allowed the local people to have somewhere to worship. And, of course, among people who would have worshipped there would have been the actors who came to perform at the theatres, including Mr William Shakespeare. And they have in the records that Edmund Shakespeare was buried there, William's William's brother.
2: brother.
1: And uh, there is a memorial to William Shakespeare, he is lying there holding Rosemary for remembrance. There is also a memorial to Sam Wanamaker, the actor who had the idea to rebuild the Globe Theatre. And there is also a memorial to Oscar Hammerstein of Rogerson and Hammerstein, um, who wrote wonderful musicals like The Sound of Music and uh, um, South Pacific. So how's he got a memorial there? How's he got a memorial there? Well, there's a chapel called the Harvard Chapel, which commemorates John Harvard, who lived in Southwark and who founded, uh, went to America and his book collection helped to found Southwark uh, um, Harvard University. Anyway, in that chapel there is a memorial to Oscar Hammerstein. Oscar Hammerstein, um, one day when he was over to supervise rehearsals for one of his musicals, and apparently he uh, was a bit disgruntled on that occasion with the singing, but then he was doing this tourist bit, walking around Southwark, and he came across Southwark Cathedral, which wasn't visited by tourists that much in those days, and he went and sat down in the cathedral and the choir was practising and he heard their wonderful singing. And he was so moved that he decided that he was going to introduce a, scholarship for a boy To sing in the choir. Nowadays, it could be a girl as well because they have boys and girls in the choir. And it was called the Oscar Hammerstein Scholarship. And I think they still have it today. But when Hammerstein was alive, he would come and present the winner. And then the winner and his family would go out for dinner with Oscar. Oh, so he definitely deserves to be remembered, doesn't he? He absolutely deserves it. Inside the cathedral. And they have some wonderful uh, memorials inside. The uh, cathedral um, going back to the earliest days, to the 13th century.
2: Yeah, I've been in there quite a few times and it's a a lovely, restful, peaceful atmosphere inside. it's a
1: cathedral, but it's not enormous like St Paul's Cathedral, so it's quite intimate there there's fantastic acoustics so uh, if you go there for a concert it really is uh, wonderful to hear the acoustics and you see bits of the layers so they've got a bit of Roman pavement that was found underneath and there's a walkway just outside there's the modern extension to the cathedral and uh, of course Bishop Desmond Tutu who died recently he did all his um, when he was studying to be a bit a clergyman, he did some of his studying. He did spend some time there, and he managed to get Nelson Mandela along to open the new wing when they uh, yes. opened it. He couldn't make it, so he sent Nelson Mandela as the second choice. <laughs> Not a bad second choice. But hey? in that modern walkway, when you walk down there, you see they've got the layers of history that yeah. they've excavated yes. underneath, including mm. some Dutch pottery. So, so
2: talking, moving out of the cathedral. And its proximity to the river, there's a little pub round the corner called the Mudlark.
1: Yes, that's right. A modern pub. But modern, it, very uh, modern pub. commemorates the fact that you would have had, when the tide was low, not only in Southwark, but all along the river, These mudlarks, And if we go back to the term of Dickens, when he wrote a book called Our Mutual Friend, where the leading characters are Gaffer Hexham and his daughter Lizzie. And they make their money from the bodies that are washed up, because if you uh, ended up in the River Thames for one reason or another and your body was washed up, Okay, they'd get two and sixpence for taking you to the local mortuary, but more importantly, they'd look first to see, oh, was that person wearing a nice gold watch or did they have any expensive jewellery on them? Was there any money on them that survived? And this is hell they were able to make their living. So there were people working there as mudlarks. And of course, there are still mudlarks today who are not actually fishing bodies out of the Thames. But when the tide is low, you need a special licence today. And there are various organisations like the Museum of London and others that run sessions where you can go down with them. And the experts will show you exactly what to do. Look for. Oh, okay. So it can be anything. They find a lot of Dutch pottery. Yeah, clay pipes. Coins, I know. Yeah, clay pipes. All sort of things. But yeah. you know, you can find a lot of modern stuff uh, as well there. And this happens all along the river where the uh, tide is low. But of course, nearer to the city, you're more likely to find things and and Southwark as well because these were the areas that were more.
2: heavily populated now i know the area obviously um, we've touched on it briefly theatres um there was a theatre there and it used to fascinate me the name the meniere chocolate factory theatre what was the story behind
1: that it's still going strong i was there the other week and it was actually a chocolate factory it's a building from the 1870s And it was a French company, Meunier, who started up. And apparently, Mr. Meunier Senior, um, he was somebody who um, used to manufacture pills and then came up with the idea of sugar-coating the pills or chocolate-coating the pills to make them taste a little bit nicer. You can't imagine doctors doing that today encouraging you to eat chocolate or sugar, can you? No. But anyway... So then he went into chocolates, but chocolate was very much a luxury thing where you would spend quite a lot of money on your individual chocolates in a box. And many a sort of Democratise the chocolate. They started doing chocolate bars. This was over in France. And there was another company making chocolate called Meunier. So Meunier had a slogan um, which was something to do with accept no imposters or right. uh, accept yep. nobody else. And there was a little girl. The sign was a little girl writing on the board that you shouldn't accept any uh, imposters. So that's what they have on the sign on the Meunier Chocolate Factory, which so is So they turned that factory into the theatre? Into a theatre, but it was, I think, headquarters of an engineering firm in between. stopping between, right, stopping okay. chocolate. Funnily enough, there's an art gallery in the same building next to the theatre, and somebody working in the art gallery told me that because of the name, they still had the occasional person coming in who was a a chef who made things out of chocolate saying, oh, are you looking for somebody to work in the chocolate factory, (laughs) which is quite funny. But it became a fringe theatre in the 2000s. And it was one of those small theatres that took off almost immediately. Their productions were transferring into the West End and they particularly made a name for musicals, small scale musicals, but with... Big professional names, and often their shows will transfer to the West End when they'll cost a lot more money. Yeah. So it's worth catching them when they're over at the Manier yeah. Chocolate
2: Factory. Yeah, it's it's strange because the area is just so. You you alluded to it at the start of our conversation; it's completely changed, and it seems like although the history was always there, it was hidden. It now seems to be at the forefront. I mean, we've ne- also now we've got the tape. Modern gallery. Well, there. it was the
1: Globe, really, the rebuilding of the Globe Theatre that led to Southwark taking off as an area that was on the tourist map. And once that was rebuilt and reopened in 1997, and that was a Kickstarter. And then, of course, Tate Modern. Mm. Now, um, Nicholas Sorota, who used to be the director of the Tate, he'd been looking for ages for another building for Tate because they had so much stuff for their 20th and 21st century collections. And he went round interviewing artists about the type of place where they like their art to be displayed. And they didn't say a modern building. If you think of where a lot of artists have studios, they liked old factories and warehouse buildings. And so he started looking at older buildings. And one day he was in a boat on the Thames when suddenly he saw the derelict Bankside Power Station and he thought, oh, That's the idea. That would be a good idea. And, of course, once that opened and you had the Globe next door, suddenly this area, which was very much undiscovered, London 25 years ago. Yeah, when I first drove a cab, it was undiscovered. And now it's just as busy. If you go there, maybe not in recent years, but certainly during the high tourist season on a sunny day on the South Bank, it is busier in that little it's as area busy as, as Piccadilly Circus and Covent yeah, Garden, absolutely. you're swept along with the crowds. And if you'd have said 25 years ago, because it became industrial, because all those theatres that used to be there were closed down by the Puritans in 1642. And then it became an industrial area. So it was wharves and warehouses all along there. And unless you worked there, you wouldn't really have mm. any reason unless you lived or worked in that area to go down there. And then suddenly, you've got very expensive flats in the old warehouses. You've got tourist attractions with Tate Modern and the Globe Theatre. And of course, there's all the restaurants and the cafes. You've got the remains of the Bishop of Winchester's Palace. He owned the land around there. Borough Market. And uh, Borough Market, exactly. Which, when I first started guiding in the 90s, Borough Market, it was still a wholesale market. But It wasn't very much going on there. It looked like it was on the version of of closure and suddenly it becomes a major tourist attraction to such an extent that they've banned guides from borough markets. We are not allowed to set our foot inside the market um, because there is the perception, and anybody who's listening, I don't mind saying this, the borough market, you have the perception, and a lot of people have the perception, actually, that when guides bring tourists to an area... That we are bringing people through, and then we'll take them away again to the West End to eat. That is simply not true. We might, you might see us walking our groups through Borough Market, but we will say to them afterwards, when the tour is over, come back there, buy your lunch here at one of the stalls here, um, and sit by the river and eat it. Do come back when we go past an area. We do promote. We do tell them about the businesses there. We don't just take them through and whisk them away on the coach. Oh, it's good to that hear that. That might have yeah. happened in the past, yeah. but. It doesn't happen Well, I mean, longer. Southwark in,
2: its, in itself yeah. is a go-to destination. It you is. don't have to take them out of there and go back to the West End. Because, that's right, I mean, yes. you and I, have we haven't even discussed some of the other things, like the Golden High End that's there and, that's all, right. and yes. some of the other yes. tourist yes. attractions yes. that are yes. around there. Yeah. There is some other small things. And, of course, we've got the Shard there now.
1: And it is an area. And, OK, as you know, you might see a guy just stopping for five minutes in front of your attraction and then moving on, because that's the nature of a tour. That's what you do. because you're giving people an overall picture of the area, but you're also introducing them to the area. So they'll come back again and spend their money and spend time there. Well,
2: Diane, next time you're doing a tour of the area, I think I might come down and join you. You're very welcome to. Thank you very much once again.